Romans chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17. And so on this Reformation Sunday, when we celebrate the 500th anniversary of uh, the Reformation, let's turn to these two verses that were highly influential on that um, historical movement and I believe need to be highly influential for us as well today. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Do please sit down. On October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther did not dress up in a Halloween costume. He nailed uh, 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. This was an academic way of entering into a debate at the time, an argument at the time, a disputation. They were statements, propositions for which he wanted to contend. At the same time, he also sent these 95 theses to an influential man who then published them throughout Germany, and they lit a wildfire in the church and the society throughout Europe at the time. They were his protest against what he took to be abuses in the church at the time, false teaching. In particular, he was incensed by the uh, teaching that uh, you could purchase your way out of purgatory by um, buying what were called, and indeed still are called, indulgences. You could purchase time off uh, the punishment of God in the in-between state between death and getting to heaven by buying uh, the Pope's favor. And uh, this uh, Martin Luther was uh, horrified by, saw it as an abuse, uh, there was a well-known phrase at the time, when the uh, coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And Martin Luther had had enough. And on this day, when the relics of the church in Wittenberg would have been on display, and people would have gone trying to get their time off purgatory, instead he stood outside the door of the church in Wittenberg and he nailed to the door a counter-proposition in 95 statements. They were his protest, hence Protestant protest against what he took to be the false teaching of the church at the time. And this was inspired, Martin Luther later uh, told us, by a personal experience he had had previous to this. Scholars differ as to whether it was previous or not. I think it almost certainly was. Previous to this date in 1517, uh, in a tower, what is known a tower experience of Martin Luther. There he was. You have to remember that there wasn't particularly good heating at the time. He was huddled around a fire studying this very passage we have just read out, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And Martin Luther was in great trauma. He was under condemnation. He was a medieval monk, and he felt guilty before the righteousness of God. And when he read these words, his mind had been trained to think of righteousness in a certain kind of way. The medieval theologians, Aquinas, Duns Scotus, many others, all taught the church that the righteousness of God was the justice of God. 
And so every time um, Martin Luther read this phrase, righteousness of God, he was under condemnation. God is righteous, I am not. And even the good news, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, even that, Martin Luther uh, read, uh, reveals God's righteousness. Even the good news of Jesus shows me how he is so holy and I am not. I am under great condemnation. Martin Luther was poring over this text, trying to find an answer to the troubles of his own conscience when he noticed the end of this passage, verses 16 and 17, quotes from the Old Testament. It goes like this, the righteous shall live by faith. And at that moment, Martin Luther, by God's Spirit, realized that what he had been taught by Duns Scotus, by Aquinas, was simply wrong and not biblical. What he realized was that actually the gospel of God is received by a personal profession, and not just a profession, a commitment of real faith in Jesus. And when you put your trust in Jesus, His righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, is then reckoned to you. You stand there before God righteous, not with your own righteousness, but with His, and therefore you're free. It was like the lights went on. Suddenly he realized that actually the gospel, the good news, truly is good news. He describes his experience like this. Hereupon, or thereafter, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. So for Martin Luther, these two verses were the gate to paradise. This is what made him so incensed by the indulgences because they were putting God's people under more and more condemnation. You cannot possibly stand righteous before God, and so what are you going to do about it? Well, what are you going to do about it is give us some of your money, and then a, a soul from purgatory will spring with each coin in the coffer that rings. And Martin Luther had enough of that. And so he stood boldly and, let us say, sometimes outrageously against the powers that be. Very famously, he was called before the Holy Roman Emperor and what's called the Diet of Worms, which is not a way to lose weight, but was a meeting of the uh, political leaders and the religious leaders to come against Martin Luther for all that he had been writing. And Luther then, against the emperor, was called to account with his books in front of him. Will you recant? Will you deny what you have written is true? Will you actually turn back to the medieval theology? And Martin Luther wrestled over this. He knew that his life was at risk. And very famously, at the end of this, he said, Here I stand. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I can do no other, so help me God. He left that meeting and actually his friends, knowing that he was about to be killed, rescued him and took him off to a castle where he disguised himself as a knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, a knight. And actually in that castle translated the New Testament out of the original Greek, not from the Latin which had been read in the churches, but out of the original Greek so that it could be revealed the righteousness of God that he had discovered out of the original Greek into popular contemporary German. So that the people 
It was a popular movement, not a sort of erudite, highly intellectual thing. He was a high intellectual, but he made it popular so the people could grasp it. He translated into popular German his New Testament. And that, of course, influenced other great uh, reformers of the time, like Zwingli and Calvin, but also a man called William Tyndale, who translated the Greek New Testament into English. And so we have, in many ways, to thank God for Martin Luther that we, this morning, can read the Bible in our own language. So though Martin Luther was by no means a perfect man, he was an imperfect man in so many ways. He wrote things that he should not have written. Uh, Famously, he wrote a tract uh, against the Jewish people, and it is a horrific thing to read, and he should not have written it. Later in life, he got disappointed, or more and more choleric, and he started to fire his rhetorical bombs at uh, various people. He should have been more kind with some of his adversaries. And Zwingli and he probably should have agreed about communion when they could not agree about communion, though he made many mistakes. He is not a perfect man, and we should not airbrush the past and idolize the past, but nor should we demonize the past, and neither should we forget to remember on this 500th anniversary that we have God to thank who used Martin Luther to enable us to rediscover the gospel of God and to have the Bible in our own language. This should be a moment of deep celebration. We're not doing it because we're historians. We're not doing it because we like 500 years. We're not doing it as an excuse to get more people in church on the 500th anniversary. You know, we're going to do it again in another 500 years. (laughs) We're doing it because we this morning need to remember the gospel. And there are contrary movements in the church today that are calling us to forget the gospel, to forget the distinctions that we find out, that we find in the Bible and to push that all to one side that we might all agree. In other words, they're trying to relativize the truth in a reflection of contemporary culture that is relativizing all truth and say that actually it doesn't really matter what you believe. Don't be such a stickler for salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It doesn't matter. In order to get along today, in order to advance today, let's let today, let's lift Let's move all that to one side and instead center our lives upon a great smush, a great sort of amalgamation of no truth, of no conviction, and we wonder why it is that we are not growing up, men and women of God, of boldness and conviction today. This is why it is, because we are not believing this text. I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is the very contrary of being shamed. I'm bold It's what's called a litotes in rhetoric. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed in order to elevate us to maximum conviction, to boldness. I'm not ashamed. Instead, I am very bold. I am convicted of the truth, and therefore I have a bold, audacious conviction of this truth, and therefore I live my life very boldly. It turned a medieval monk, guilt-ridden, repressed, discouraged to a man of God on a mission who risked his very life for Christ, and he can do that for you too this morning. He can do it for our church. It can turn the church worldwide, the church throughout the West, from a church that is 
pulling back from all its engagement with culture for fear that somehow things are going so badly, there's nothing that we can do about it. Instead, to be a church that's not ashamed of the gospel and takes the gospel with maximum boldness, courageously, at the risk of our very lives for the sake of Christ. And it all comes from reminding ourselves of what this gospel is and rediscovering what this gospel is today, this morning. This section of Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. That is, this gospel is the only hope for society to have racial reconciliation. I firmly believe that. Of course, racial reconciliation is the great topic of our day. What is the answer to it? Let me tell you what the answer is. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. That is for all nations. That is for all races. When we did a church revitalization in New Haven, we started with just 20 or so people, 20, maybe 30 people. And it really was 20 people because there was one family there that had 10 children. So it was, it was 20 or... Uh, that, that uh, woman, was uh, her husband had died of cancer. He had been a missionary into inner, c- inner city New Haven, African-American family with her 10 children. There we were in that church. We were not extraordinarily multiracial, but we were diverse and, yes, multiracial. What I noticed in that city was the churches that had lost the gospel, the churches that talked most about diversity, were the least diverse of them all. You know why? Because the more you talk about diversity, the more you realize that you have not much in common. Well, there's, uh, you know, there's this color, there's that color, there's this culture, there's this class. Every time we fill out a survey and it says, you know, what race are you from? I always feel deeply offended. What does it matter? What does it matter? I don't want to check, you know, that I'm Caucasian. I'm not Caucasian. I'm a Christian. You know, do you, do you really want to know that my ancestors were, you know, some of them from probably Scots-Irish, actually a whole bunch of them that came from Scotland, went to Southern Ireland. They were architects and there was that group and then others were Anglo-Saxon. I probably got Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, you know, a lot of fair amount of Irish, which is why I'm kind of passionate. And then there's the kind of repressive Anglo-Saxon thing on top, you know. And <laughs> do you really care? And is just checking the box Caucasian a sufficient summary of all that? The churches that we discovered were least diverse, the ones that spent all their time talking about diversity. And the churches, like ours, but not just ours, the the fantastically vibrant, charismatic church just outside the city, never talked about diversity. Why? Because they talked about Christ. And when we talked about Christ, we realized that actually we had Everything that matters in common. It's the great hope for racial reconciliation in our society. It is not by accident that as the gospel retreats in a society, other powers come up, other distinctions come up, and people fight over different things. Who has more money? Who has less money? Who is brought from whatever kind of cultural, class, educational, background, socioeconomic unit? These things matter. We do need to be advancing ways to 
deal with injustices in our world and our society today. We do need to deal with repression. We need to be on mission for all that. But we will not be on mission for all that unless we are deeply convicted that anyone who says that there are fundamental distinctions between races that cannot be united around Christ is denying the very biblical gospel of which Martin Luther stood and which is right here in Romans and which we preach here at the church. It is the great hope for racial reconciliation in our world today. Why? Because we're not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. First the Jew, then for the Gentile. Why? From the gospel, righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This was the great hope that Martin Luther discovered that we summarize here in these two verses and that when we went through Romans in our far too brief series on the book of Romans we discovered is actually what Romans teaches, and it is actually what the Bible teaches. So what the Reformers did after, they, after Martin Luther discovered that this is what this passage taught, he then in his mind went through Scripture and discovered this is what the Bible taught, and then to their great astonishment, they went back to the early church fathers, Augustine, Chrysostom, Tertullian, and discovered it was what they taught as well. And they became reformers. That is people not starting something new from scratch, but making the case that the church had lost the gospel, that it had been in what Martin Luther called its Babylonian captivity. And they were now seeking to release God's people from that repression. Not that everything they did was correct. Not that we should worship and idolize uh, those forebears. But that we should thank God that the Scripture that is translated in front of us and the gospel that is preached from this pulpit and across the land and the world this morning has under God much to thank this Martin Luther for and his boldness, his courage, his not being ashamed. So, what does that mean for us this morning? I've reminded us of the story of Martin Luther, and I've reminded us of the story of the gospel, but a reminder is not a rediscovery. A rediscovery is more personal, it is more committed, and it is more convinced. And what I want to ask you this morning is, would you rediscover the gospel? That is, would you this morning rediscover that it is true and be convinced of that? That actually what we have in front of us is the truth. I know many of us because I, you, have, you talk to me about it, are concerned about what's going on in our culture and our society these days, and are confused about why there is so much confusion. The reason why our culture and our society is facing, in many ways, unparalleled challenges, both in terms of poverty and in terms of morality, both, 
The reason why is because of a series of ideological intellectual commitments that came out of elite European universities in the 18th century and then have percolated their way down to American elite universities and from there to our leaders, both religious and political, and are now in one way or another being preached throughout the world. And those sort of ideas are relativism and all under that banner of relativism. And if you think that the truth is only relativistically true, then you will not be able to believe that uh, you should live a certain way. You will decide in the end that you should grab what you can while you can for as long as you can. And man abhors a vacuum. And so without the worship and the awe and the fear of God in our culture today, people are looking for other gods. It is not by accident that there's more... Um, uh, witchcraft and new age spirituality and, and of course the worship of money and fame and sports because we look for a center, a place where we can have astonished awe And if it is not on God, it will be on something or someone else, a film star. But the awe that the human heart needs is found securely in no other place than the awesome God of the Bible that we can encounter through the gospel that is preached in the Bible and was rediscovered by the Reformers. And I want you this morning to make a fresh commitment to rediscover that the gospel is true. To think of the truth of the Bible is not to play an intellectual game. If you're not convinced of the truth of the Bible, you will not live in accord with what the Bible says is true. This is why in your conversations with your children, you need to build in apologetics. This is why in your conversations and teaching across the street in Sunday school, you need to build in apologetics. Answers to the questions today about suffering or science or whatever it is, so that people actually can grasp that what we are preaching from this pulpit is not being preached simply because it's the 500th anniversary, not being preached simply because this is our tradition or our background or our preference, but being preached because it is true. What Francis Schaeffer called true truth. And for us to have a rediscovery of the gospel and to live in a way that is unashamed, we this morning need not simply to know, be reminded of what is said in the Bible, but to be convicted that what is said is true. There will be no new reformation, new move of God, unless the people of God have a deep-seated ability and conviction that what we believe is true. Of course, many of us have that. That's why we send our children on missions. This is why we we give our tithes and offerings. This is why we spend time serving. But you this morning, if you're wondering here whether I can really buy into what is being said and you're a little bit looking on the outside, let me put it to you like this. Until you become convinced that it is true, you will not truly be convinced and you will not live a life of true commitment if you're not committed to it being true. 
It's not an intellectual game. It's a question of what is fundamental foundational reality. And of course, I believe that the fundamental, fundamental foundational reality is what is being preached from the pulpit this morning. That is that we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Will you make a fresh commitment to discover, to rediscover the truth of the gospel? Will you make a fresh commitment to rediscover that the gospel actually works? So the solution to the racial challenges between Jew and Gentile in Rome was the gospel, and the solution to our racial challenges today is the gospel. The solution to the sexual confusion of ancient Rome was the gospel, and the solution to the sexual confusion of modern America is the gospel. It is not behavior modification. It is a spiritual regeneration that comes through the power of God through faith in Christ. It works. I've told this story before, but it's so good, I'm going to tell it again. You have to forgive me, I'm a preacher. That's the way it works. I remember one very liberal pastor, that is, skeptical pastor, who was not very convicted about the truth of these things of which we're speaking this morning. I remember one very liberal pastor or skeptical pastor coming to me in frustration that he could not solve the problems of his church. Things were not going well, and so he came to us to discover what it was that we were doing. I described our ministry. I said, uh, he said, well, what is it you're doing? I said, we preach the Bible. He said, well, we've tried everything else. Maybe we should try that. It works. We lived in an area of uh, inner city where I used to walk through the hood, the neighborhood, and observe every day the kind of social breakdown and the chaos of the inner city. There was one street there that was known as Dwight Street, but so many awful things happened on that street that colloquially it was not known as Dwight Street, but Fright Street. There was always a police car there just waiting for the next drug deal to go wrong. And as I walked through this neighborhood and observed all the kind of social confusion and chaos, I also observed something else. There was a church. And every Wednesday night out of the prayer meeting would come Christians grasped onto their Bibles, popping out of the church like popcorn out of a popcorn maker. Every Sunday morning they were spilling out into the streets with hope and confidence and joy. And the hope for that neighborhood was not the, was the church, was not any of the social action programs. The hope for that neighborhood was the gospel and God's people who had believed the gospel. It was the church. That was the great hope for the change that needs to take place. It was the church. It works. I remember one church that was trying to get um, me to be its pastor when I, back when I was about 27 or something like that. It was a good church in Belfast. And uh, we were looking at it, in the end I decided that probably with my accent, uh, being a pastor of a church in Belfast might not be the smartest move to make, but it was a great church. And as I was getting to know the church, I, I noticed, though it was in quite a troubled area of Belfast, many, if not all, of the members of the church lived in the suburbs and had rather nice lifestyles, and that seemed to me to be potentially problematic if we were going to do any kind of authentic ministry into, the, into this diverse and troubled neighborhood in, in Belfast. And so I began to explain this uh, uh, concern I had to some of the elders, and the elders said to me, oh, Josh, you've got to understand something. About 20 years ago, there was a revival, and a lot of people were converted 
And having been converted, they put their course, having put their trust in Christ, they then began to put their life in order. Their families were brought back together. Their marriages were restored. They started to live with responsibility. They started to be able to get a job and keep a job. And thereafter, now they are living lives of sacrificial generosity to the neighborhood in which the church is. I get it. I get it. It works. It works. And maybe you're sitting here saying, I don't understand all this stuff about the book of Romans. I missed those four years where you went through that book. I don't understand all that this is about the Reformation. 500 years seems about 499 years too far in the past for me. But would you this morning at least grasp onto the truth for the practical reality that it works? Would you try God in this, that he is sweeter than honey? Would you try God in this, that he who honors me, I will honor, says the Lord? Would you this morning give your life to Christ with fresh commitment and put aside the deeds of darkness, all the sinful habits which you wrestle and struggle? Bring those to God and say, Lord, I need help in this area. Would you help me? I commit my life to you. Would you then do it if for no other reason than it works? And as you do that, you'll find that he is indeed sweeter than honey, and you'll love him in the way that he has loved you. A rediscovery of the gospel, you must rediscover that it's true, that it works, and it must be personal. There can be no rediscovery unless we move from being a spectator to being a participant. Spectator to being a participant. We, because of the technology in our culture today, are becoming a society that is so used to watching and find it very hard to be present wherever we are. And it's almost as if I think that, you know, when I first started preaching, I used to feel it was almost as if I was in t- on television for people. You could look out and someone would be watching you. It was like you were the TV screen. They'd be picking their nose and scratching their ear. And it's, it's almost as if they think they couldn't see you. I can see you, by the way, you know. And that was a barrier to participation. But, of course, there's a new barrier with all our phones and social media. We're not present. But, you know, it's not like I'm the guy, I'm not the quarterback with the football throwing down the field, and you're sort of going, okay, well done. You've got to participate. You say, I wish college church was more like that. Well... Maybe that's your calling, to make it more like that. I wish we were more involved in this neighborhood. Well, maybe that's your calling, to lead us in that direction. You've got to participate. The rediscovery of the gospel requires a rediscovery that it's true, that it works, and it requires a personal participation. And so would you now, with that... Faith and that certainty live boldly for Christ and rediscover what Martin Luther discovered from this passage, that it was truly the gate to paradise. Let us pray.
First of all, would you bring to God uh, the areas of the Bible, the gospel that you're not sure are true and ask Him to shed light upon those? Would you then, by God's Spirit, commit your life to Him or recommit your life to Him? Would you bring to Him the things that you wrestle to trust Him with this morning? Ask Him to intervene where you cannot solve problems with the faith that it works because He is sovereign. And would you this morning personally participate, not be passive, but as it were, say to God, here am I, use me. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.